if, if a reading experience could be described as orgasmic, the shudders continue to this, to this moment. Um, has there ever been a review like this? I wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Blast off. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Hello. And here at the Pleasure of the Text podcast, we believe that reading and writing is not a lonely pursuit. And the Pleasure of the Text lies in the shared imaginative space where readers and writers make meaning together. And I am just so excited for uh, today, Gareth, because we are doing our book review segment and we are discussing Secret Rendezvous by Kobo Abe. Yeah, it is exciting, isn't it? So exciting. Great and, book. Um, oh, such a good book. And I can't wait to talk about it a bit more. So I'm just going to give a, a very brief uh, biography or background on Kobo Abe for people who are new to his work, which I was one of them. So Kobo Abe, or pseudonym of Kimifusa Abe, is a Japanese, oh, sorry, he's passed away, was a Japanese writer, playwright, photographer, and inventor. He was the son of a doctor and studied medicine at Tokyo University, but he never practiced, giving it up to join a literary group that aimed to apply surrealist techniques to Marxist ideology. And you will definitely uh, get that sense when we dig deeper into this book. And um, so Abe has often been compared to Franz Kafka and Alberto Moravia for his surreal, often nightmarish explorations of individuals in contemporary society and his modernist sensibilities. So yeah, that's a bit of background on this amazing writer. Bit of a renaissance man, wasn't he? He was doing a lot of things. Yeah, he was. And his wife, um, I mean, we don't really... We aren't really going to discuss her, but she seems to also have been involved with that literary group. She was a poet and used to do some of his artwork, I believe. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I didn't even know that. She's another of these uh, hidden women that we'll have to uh, we'll have to look into that, actually, in a later podcast. All yeah, I of... found it out on, um, if you go to Wikipedia, uh, it gives a little um, bio on her as well. And actually, I'm going to look it up right now. Why not? Let's give light to some of these hidden women. Yeah, while you're looking literature. it up, I'll uh, I'll just do a little plug for uh, Virago Classics. If uh, if you're a oh, fan yeah. of forgotten writers, or well, actually, they're not all forgotten, but Virago uh, has a list that includes a number of writers who have been sort of overlooked uh, by literary history, uh, which is you know written by the winners, which tend to be uh, men at the moment, but uh there's some fantastic titles in there and actually um next month i think my book club is doing one of them by elizabeth taylor not that elizabeth taylor but the uh the writer elizabeth taylor who used to actually get uh the actress elizabeth taylor's fan mail which must have been very disconcerting um and yeah we're doing uh, a book of hers i think it was her last book um Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont. So there's one to check out. Um, So back to, so in 1945, Abe married Machi Yamada, an artist and stage director, and the couple saw successes within their fields in similar timeframes. 
So that's a bit of background on her and she did illustrate Into Ice Age 4, which was one of his books that he produced in 1959. I don't have that one. No. Going to have to get on to that. And also a big shout out to the translator, Um, also a woman. Juliet Winters Carpenter. Yes, Juliet Winters Carpenter. Thank you very much, Juliet, for putting in the work to give us such a fantastic novel. A really, really wonderful translation. Um, Mm. E. Dale Saunders uh, translated the previous two novels in what we're going to find out is a trilogy. Um, and the both translations are excellent and they're really congruent with each other. They, they really uh, flow well into each other. You wouldn't know who did what. Yeah. Did you want to give us a bit of a background on how this piece fits into that trilogy? Yeah. So <clears throat> when we talk about trilogies, we usually mean in a narrative sense, but this, this isn't that kind of trilogy. Uh, it's more of a thematic trilogy. Uh, beginning in uh, 1967 with The Ruined Map, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful novel, which, uh, which I just finished reading. And it was very much uh, the springboard for Secret Rendezvous because I was raving about it to Shannon. And she said, well, why don't we read the next one? Um, so The Ruined Map, 1967. I'll, I'll just give you the quick uh, Goodreads synopsis. Uh Mr. Nemuro, a respected salesman, disappeared over half a year ago, but only now does his alluring yet alcoholic wife hire a private eye. The nameless detective has but two clues, a photo and a matchbook. With these, he embarks upon an ever more puzzling pursuit that leads him into the depths of Tokyo's dangerous underworld, where he begins to lose the boundaries of his own identity. Surreal, fast-paced and hauntingly dreamlike, Abe's masterly novel delves into the unknowable mysteries of the human mind. So that's The Ruined Map. Mm-hmm. He followed this up in 1973 with The Box Man. So I'll give you yeah. the synopsis for this one. In this eerie and evocative masterpiece, the nameless protagonist gives up his identity and the trappings of a normal life to live in a large cardboard box he wears over his head. Wandering the streets of Tokyo and scribbling madly on the interior walls of his box, he describes the world outside as he sees or perhaps imagines it, a tenuous reality that seems to include a mysterious rifleman determined to shoot him, a seductive young nurse, and a doctor who wants to become a boxman himself. The boxman is a marvel of sheer originality and a bizarrely fascinating fable about the very nature of identity. Okay. So you may be noticing that there's a certain word besides uh, masterpiece that's cropping up here. So that was 73. And then four years later, in 1977, we reached the book we're actually going to review today, Secret Rendezvous. (laughs) Yeah. I'll give you the synopsis for this one. Or should I? No, I will. Secret Rendezvous. From the moment that an ambulance appears in the middle of the night to take his wife, who protests that she is perfectly healthy, her bewildered husband realises that things are not as they should be. His covert explorations reveal that the enormous hospital she is taken to, she, oh, sorry, she was taken to, is home to a network of constant surveillance, outlandish sex experiments, and an array of very odd and even violent characters. 
Within a few days, though no closer to finding his wife, the unnamed narrator finds himself appointed to the hospital's chief of security, reporting to a man who thinks he's a horse. With its nightmarish vision of modern medicine and modern life, Secret Rendezvous is another masterpiece from Japan's most gifted and original writer of serious fiction. Secret Rendezvous, another masterpiece. So, you know, that's a good thing, isn't it? it makes it an easy review. Yeah. Would you describe it as a masterpiece, Shannon? Um, oh, gosh. I don't like the word masterpiece. What does that even mean? It's problematic, isn't it? Because um, yeah. in, in actual fact, we're, we're talking about a form, the piece, and it has mastered it. Now, if it's utterly original, it would have to be a masterpiece. It, yeah. it stands on its own as the, as the primary example of its form uh, and therefore must be a masterpiece. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can't answer the question of, is it a masterpiece, but I can uh, answer that I think this was a fantastic book. And I'm really, really glad that you told me about Kobo Abe. Um, I will admit that in the first 20 pages I was reading, I was like, oh God, not another one of um, Gareth's uh, crazy recommendations. So Gareth <laughs> recommends me movies all the time, which I sit down and uh, watch with my partner. But after the first 20 pages, I was like, yeah, actually there's something really cool happening here. And I could not put it down after that. Um, so what did you think about it, Garrett? <clears throat> I, um, yeah, I was very impressed by it. I, like I said, I read the ruined map first and the ruined map, I think you would call that a masterpiece. Uh, in that it takes a particular form, which is the sort of, uh, Chandlerian, Chandlerian, there you go, uh, novel of, of detective fiction. And in Raymond Chandler, in, in a sense, it's not really about the mystery. It's about Chandler and who Chan, uh, uh, sorry, it's about Marlowe, the, the detective and who Marlowe is. Um, and to a certain extent, the mystery is secondary. And there's a famous anecdote about Raymond Chandler where when they were making the film of the big sleep, they realized they didn't know who murdered the chauffeur. So they actually rang up Chandler and said, who murdered the chauffeur? And he thought, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, so, so it's not always about the mystery with Chandler. And in a sense with Abe, who I think is riffing on Chandler, at least in part, um, it's, it is very much about the mystery, but in a way it's very much not about the mystery. Uh, and one of the amazing things about Abe's work is he manages to make things seem both one thing and another simultaneously, um, uh, in all kinds of fascinating ways. I think he's also a really interesting character. Um, he has, he shares, um, some traits with, uh, Yukio Mishima, um, who is a writer we should also look into, had a very fascinating background. Um, which included his death when he took over the parliament of Japan um, in a, in an act of political rebellion and committed seppuku or ritual suicide. Um, very interesting fellow. But uh, the reason why I say they're quite similar is they were both um, polymaths. They were both um, 
in, in they had their fingers in all kinds of pies. Uh, yeah. And Mishima was a was an actor. He did a bunch of films as well as being a very serious writer. And I note that Abe was very involved in the theatre and um, and was an inventor. I'd love to know what he invented based on his novels. It might be quite horrendous. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so I was – I'm just tremendously impressed by Abe as a writer, and I suspect he's not going to write a book that I don't like. But certainly Secret Rendezvous was a winner for me. Yeah. Um, so what was your experience with reading this? So when I got halfway through, because it's such a weird and crazy novel. So I suppose I'll talk about the main character who doesn't have a name, Mm. but he is referred, he refers to himself as the man or in uh, first person. Oh, may I I interject? I'm very sorry. I feel like I should throw up a quick warning that there will be spoilers. Spoilers. During this podcast, Um, and I I could feel one coming. It was bubbling over the rim, so I thought I'd better chuck that in. Spoilers, folks. So if you haven't read the book yet and you intend to, I hate to say this, but switch us off and uh, and go read it and then come back uh, in five minutes. All right, back to you, Shannon. Sorry about that. Okay, go do that. (laughs) Um, So where was I? Uh, So, yeah, the man, um, as he goes um, into this hospital and he meets these Uh, we find out there's a bit of voyeurism. So uh, people within the hospital have been recording people's um, sexual rendezvous, secret rendezvous, playing with themselves, masturbating, all types of crazy things. And as it progressed, I was like, oh, this is kind of like a Shutter Island situation where at the end of the book, we're going to find out he's actually in a mental institution. He's made up this whole scenario about how he had his wife. Maybe his wife died, but it did not end like that. And I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think... uh... I'm going to keep doing this, but going back to the ruined map, I could see the ending of that one coming a mile away and it played out exactly as I imagined and completely differently to the way I imagined, uh, which is quite a hard thing to explain, but, um, and I'm not going to because we haven't, uh, reviewed that one yet. And so we haven't done our spoiler alert, but I think that's the thing about Arbe that there's not this, um, sense that you can piece him out, you can, you know, pull out the threads of his narrative and work out what he's doing. And even if you can, you're going to be wrong. Uh, and that's his originality, I think. Um, and it's, yeah. and, and in fact, this, this voyeurism, uh, it's a sort of a state surveillance, isn't it? I mean, it's not just, there's a cottage industry built around the sexual activity of people in the hospital, but they're, they're recording everything. So you mundane conversations, uh, toilet acts, the whole kit and caboodle, and it's described in quite a lot of detail and it's kind of impressive, isn't it? Yeah. And it's not even that they're, they've made a business out of it. Yeah. They, um, hire out these, uh, CDs or DVDs. Actually, would they be taped back in that day? Gosh, I I had the image of sort of eight. <clears throat> well, actually, no, they have sides. So I think it would have been maybe cassette tapes. I think they okay. existed by that point. And I, so, so the thing about the characters is that, um, 
the doctors, the nurses tend to all be patients, uh, and sometimes other things as well. Um, and characters, their position, their social position in the book changes from, from time to time. Uh, so that there's a couple of heads of security in the course of the novel, neither one of them entered the story as a head of security. They held other roles. Um, and we have an assistant director, um, who's known as the horse. And I, I know you want to talk about him, Shannon, because he was a favorite of yours. Uh, yeah. So within that first, uh, first chapter, we're introduced to the horse. Now I had to read the pages describing the horse several times because I kept wavering between, you know, this man can't be a horse, but then they're talking about how he has four legs and I'm like, okay, maybe he's running on all fours as in he's got arms and legs on the ground, but no, then they talk about him wiping the sweat off his face with, um, a towel. And it's like, okay, so he has arms. It was just bizarre. So. Um, the reason why he becomes a horse, why is that, Gareth? Oh, thanks. Yeah, pass that over to me. So um, <laughs> the horse is engaging in a perverse act of cryptozoology. Um, if you're not familiar with that term, it's the uh, sewing together of two animals to create a new animal. The uh, Fiji mermaid is a famous example of cryptozoology. The Fiji mermaid was the top of a monkey sewed onto the bottom of a shark. I think it was a small shark. And that was how they when made the they Fiji. That? Oh, that was, um, was it Barnum? P.T. Barnum. And uh, it was part of his uh, quote unquote freak show. Um, people would go see the um, preserved remains of the Fiji mermaid and their imaginations would wander. Um, yeah. so the assistant director is the horse and he's some other things besides the reason why he takes the, the bottom half of a horse and, and attaches, I suppose you wouldn't take the top half, would you? But the reason, the main reason he takes the bottom half of a horse is for its enormous, uh, penis. Um, which he plans to use in sex acts on the daughter of the head of security. Wait, wait, wait. But it's not the bottom of a horse. It's the bottom of another man. No, uh, I, I was, I, I actually have sort of, um, in my head, oh, yeah. it has become the bottom of a horse. I mean, I mean, we were kind of conditioned to believe that, weren't we? Because almost every room that our main character enters, there's a picture of two horses engaging in sexual intercourse. And every time the, the sexual organ gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So I can see why you would believe, like, think it's the bottom of a horse. Yeah. I, and consciously, I realize it's the bottom half of the, uh, the head of security. Yeah. Um, nevertheless. When I visualize it, it's always the bottom half of a horse. Isn't that yeah. strange? Uh, but no stranger than this book. And in fact, it's probably more palatable than where we're going with this, which is the bottom half of the head of security uh, belongs to the father 
of a of a thirteen year old girl that the assistant director wants to have sex with. Um, so we tie into this, uh, I guess, uh, uh, pedophilia. Um, we it, I, a whole bunch of but, yeah, topics, bestiality, really. incest. There's a, there's a lot going on. I, I feel like I want yeah. to pass all that over to you now, Shannon, to continue to explain. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, this the girl character. Um, actually, let's go back and talk about this running theme that, as you discussed, was going through the box fan and also through this book as well. So we have this theme of doctor and patient. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of want to go a bit of background in terms of Abe's background. So we did cover that he studied medicine at Tokyo University and he made a joke in an interview that he got his paper based on the premise that they don't want him to ever practice medicine because he was that bad. So it kind of makes you wonder what was he doing as he was studying medicine? So maybe that is the um, the file, the fruit for this story. <laughs> Cryptozoology. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just trying to get this quote. So Abe's family was in Tokyo at the time due to his father's year of medical research in Tokyo. His mother had been raised in Hokkaido while he experienced childhood in Manchuria. This triplicate assignment of origin was influential to Abe, who told Nancy Shields in a 1978 interview, I am essentially a man without a hometown. This may be what lies behind the hometown phobia that runs in the depth of my feelings. All things that are valued for their stability offend me. So it's that real last, that, that last sentence that I think um, I, I sense throughout this novel. So we picture the relationship between doctor and patient being something that's stable. And mm-hmm. in this book, uh, Kobo Abe puts that on its head. And as you said, there's um, dual personalities throughout all of this where doctors are patients and patients are doctors. They're not just one and the same thing. And I'm going to read out from the book where it kind of talks about this in a lot of detail and really kind of elucidate what he's trying to create here. So in this part, he's talking to the horseman, the assistant director. And this is uh, the horseman's response. When a person is hurt, the important thing isn't sympathy for the pain, but somebody to stop the bleeding, disinfect the wound and sew it up. You have to treat the injured person not like a human being with a wound, but like a human wound. For a doctor who's used to such relationships, nothing is more maddening than a patient who acts like a goddamn human being. To keep from arousing his doctor's anger, the patient tries to stop being human. The doctor becomes more and more alone. His nerves go on edge and he drifts farther and farther from humanity. I guess you can even say a prejudice against patients is one requirement for a great doctor. Paradoxically, though, the loneliness of doctors is itself the most human thing that there is. Only man has turned away from the law of survival of the fittest, taken up the weak and ailing, and guaranteed their right to survival. So heroes perish, but the weak live on. One measure of a civilization, in fact, is the percentage of misfits in society. There is even a political scientist, Anonymous, who claims that our modern age is an age of the patient, by the patient, and for the patient. So people shouldn't go around complaining that this is a sick age. In a way, 
The doctor's loneliness is the patient's right. But if the doctor wants to escape his loneliness, then all he can do is become a patient and take on dual qualifications. That's been my attitude all along. That's why I never worried about being impotent. It's really true. Being impotent made me that much closer to the patients, so it was actually kind of comforting. So, yeah. So perhaps he is sewing on the bottom half of another person to reestablish his authority as a doctor, do you think? Because he's removing his own impotence at that point. Uh, yes, could be. But I always thought he, because he is a doctor, he's currently looking after the girl that he wants to have sex with. Um, mm. And his wife uh, is a doctor of a sort, working in psychiatry. Um, doctor of a sort, yes. 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 Uh, a pseudo. Okay, anyway. But um, what's, I mean, the reason why he has become a patient is because he can't use his penis. Uh, mm -hmm. Kobo Abe has this fantastic um, uh, line that he uses. So he says, his penis laid limply against one thigh, looking exactly like fish entrails. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a classic Abe uh, description. Yep, yep. Horrendous, horrendous. And yeah, and you mentioned the girl, the patient, and she's interesting because she is not a wounded human. She is a human wound. And so she doesn't have a dual role. She is the only character in the book, in fact, that is a true patient. And I wouldn't say her identity changes at all. Not at all. This novel which is interesting. So why is she a human wound though? Hmm. Um, I just want to read out a quote from the start of the book when we start talking about the girl. Oh, okay. So love for the weak always includes a certain murderous intent. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so the girl who is 13, um, I mean, that raises issue, but both of our main characters, so we've got the horseman and also the man, um, want to have sex with her. And they, I mean, to the extent that the man eventually kidnaps her and takes her down to the tunnels for a secret rendezvous. Um, so this girl has a very particular disease where her bones uh, dissolve and become like liquid fluid mm. and she changes shape. Uh, depending on what position she's held into. Um, so to me, this love for this girl is to do, in a way, with how pliable she is. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think part of the doctor's fascination is that she's a true patient, so they can have this perfect relationship. Um, mm. I actually didn't read it um, in the sense of the man wanting to have sex with the girl, oddly enough. How did you interpret that? Um, I think that he's trying to save, he's trying to save her, but really I think what she represents is part of himself that he's desperately trying to salvage. And at the end of the novel, he has a secret rendezvous for one because she isn't really there for him at least again you, you run into this sort of problem where 
is she not there in the logic of the novel or is she not there um in the symbolism of the novel you know it it's it's a difficult thing this is where uh the book kind of runs off down the labyrinths of the reader's mind and you you're not sure uh exactly how you're reading it but i certainly i did not think that he was um coveting her sexually um i think pretty much everyone else in the novel was um but i think he was attempting something like a noble act which was both selfless and paradoxically selfish uh and this is why this is why Abe is so great you you can sort of read it both ways at once and feel equally satisfied and frustrated with both readings yeah uh she's obviously a very problematic character um in terms of social norms and uh but but he handles it in a really clever way this is a novel that's full of potential outrages um but for the most part everything is off screen off the edge of the page uh implied to a certain extent you manufacture it in your own imagination as a reader he he very much draws you into that space hmm ah i don't so i i think i'm going to have to disagree please do because um I mean, we talked about, well, we're going to talk about, you know, there's a lot of taboo in this book, especially around sex and whether or not the main character, so the man tries to do a noble act. I don't think it ends up being as noble as, um, like you said, as it is in the end, because, you know, a secret rendezvous for one, you know, potentially she's already died at the end. But there's a paragraph here that I'm going to read that talks about them escaping into the tunnel which i think is quite sexual um so rubbing my stomach i opened the trunk under the wheelchair took out a flashlight and checked on the girl she was as oddly distorted as a rubber doll blown up too hard but putting my ear up close i can hear faint breathing in the depths of my irrational joy of being alone with her at last my eyes filled with tears i stuck a finger in the crease under her jaw and rubbed gently she half opened her eyes, blinking as though the light were dazzling. I kissed her nipples, which were like two scars. An answering sound met my ears, as though someone had stepped on a ball with a hole in it. So, in this passage, I read, you know, I'm at, I'm alone at last with this girl in the dark. No one's going to find us. I can finally do what I've always wanted to do. Um, and when we talked about the the horseman's wife so she uh, is a psychiatrist and she mm. has discussion with the man about uh, sex and um how we have ritualized sex so it's um it becomes acceptable you know we lie us to ourselves about what we really want out of a couple so you know his wife disappears she is potentially entered into an orgasm contest you know, what she really wants is, you know, maybe just having sex with men while she's wearing a mask. I mean, that is a potential interpretation of that. Whereas what the man wants is to have sex with someone like the girl who is this human wound that he can be a doctor to in a way, 
be that um, force over her. Uh, so kind of to wrap up what I'm trying to get to is, um, so this is the conversation that the man has with the horseman's wife. Hmm. Um, she even told me frankly all about her reasons for separating from her husband, which is the horseman. The day they married, they had made a bizarre agreement to confirm all their conversations with each other using the lie detector. Their decision had not been based on jealousy or suspicion. It had been a free choice meant actually as a positive, naive confirmation of their love. Not to blame, but to forgive. They had sought to eliminate the artifice of lies. Results had undermined all their expectations, producing just the opposite effect from that intended. Day after day, the vital tension between them had weakened until in the end, nothing was left but an empty space like unexposed film. It wasn't that anything had changed especially, it was just like a light bulb with no electric current. I guess lie detectors have a freezing effect. And if truth is the front, then lies are the back. You end up thinking of everything in terms of front and back, she said. Sounds pretty dismal, he said. Even computers think of everything in binary terms, she replied. Yes or no, that might work if there were never any contradictions between feelings and reason. But take away that contradiction from people and what do you think would be left? If there were nothing but facts, no lies or truth. That would certainly be logical, he said. That was what I hated more than anything else about myself, she replied. So your article on the logic of lying was based on your own experiences? Have you read it? She asked. I'm sure it's way over my head, he responded. Well, for example, there are social lies, such as calling the announcement that two people are about to begin sexual relations a wedding, or calling the period of temporary seclusion when they devote themselves to sex a honeymoon. That does away with the sense of indecency, doesn't it? When the sex act is made a ritual and the body's personal relations centre can relax and issue its own permit, she said. So I've added the she said, he said kind of, so you can see who's talking. But when she's saying this, you know, we're, we're talking about, I mean, we've got rape in this. We've got bestiality. We've got uh, sex potentially with a minor. These are all indecent things and voyeurism that we don't want to ever discuss. Um, I think that this element of the girl character is exploring yeah, in a way, identity, but also the lies that we surround ourselves in trying to keep up with the standards of society and what we should want and what we actually want. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, the only thing I would add to that is that um, <clears throat> he's searching for his wife, the main character, and she may or may not be the masked woman that we encounter late in the in the novel. Um, and in a sense, it makes no difference. He, he doesn't mm. seek to actually claim her or find her. Um, and, and again, her identity is, is sort of, um, split between yes, it is the wife and no, it isn't the wife. Uh, and I think that his, the parallel to this is that he takes the girl into the tunnel. In, and I think that she is both him and herself. And I think his motives are both 
selfless and selfish at the same time. I wonder, I mean, for me, it's not even a hundred percent clear she's there at all. Um, I think that this is what the book does. And, and when it talks about the binary nature of meaning, you know, this or that, what Abe is doing all through the book with identity as, as the primary theme of the book, um, is he saying it's this and that at the same time, always at the same time, the same thing. Yeah. And it's an amazing book in that sense that you can, I think, you know, if I read this in a year's time, I might read it completely differently um, and be just as, as right and wrong as I am now. Um, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. And, and also the character of um, the secretary yeah. is also really interesting. Um, and there's a, there's a shocking scene near the end. I think you have a quote for that too, actually. Don't you? I, I seem to recall there being a quote. Uh, yes. Yeah, surrounding the secretary and the girl. Mm, yeah. Okay. Do you want me to read that one out? Yeah. That one, that one actually alarmed me. I remember thinking, oh my God. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So at this stage in the book, the man is investigating whether the masked woman is his wife or not. So he's left the secretary and the girl and he's just returning back to them. Between the scarlet quilt and the secretary's bottom, a reddish putty-like substance was all poking out. She was sitting on top of the girl. Overwhelmed by an emotion that was neither rage nor pain, I grabbed the secretary's arm and wrenched her up with all my might. When I lifted up the girl in the wheelchair, she squirmed slightly and groaned. Her life appeared to be in no immediate danger. Taking hold of what I guess were her hands and feet, I pulled on them gently. I had a feeling that if I nursed her a while, eventually I could have her back looking like a human again. Very, I mean, there's a real violence to it. Um, and oh, yeah. it should be I said mean, that she the... is quite violent to the man as well. Throughout oh, she most is. Of their interactions. Biting, stabbing, doing all sorts of stuff to Kicking. Him. Um, and she is both a victim in the, and, and an ally to him at times. Yeah. Um, and I think genuinely so. And yet also perhaps the novel's chief antagonist. It's, it's really fascinating. But I, I remember that when I read that scene, it, it was just horror piled upon horror because she wasn't just sitting on the girl. She was also sitting on what was left of the girl's mother who had been repurposed mm. In another act of, yeah, uh, like another, you know, um, display for Barnum's freak show. Uh, the mother had begun um, producing cotton out of her skin um, and oh, they kept gosh, pulling it out. That was really weird, wasn't it? There, there is a condition, I can't remember what it's called, uh, where people claim that occurs to them. They start shedding threads through their pores. Um, oh, wow. it's believed to be a psychological condition. Um, and it has the status of a syndrome because it's difficult to, uh, diagnose in any kind of coherent way. I believe most famously, um, Joni Mitchell has claimed to suffer from it. Um, and so, yeah, you get these threads that basically are under your skin being produced. So the mother has this happen to her. 
until she's reduced to a pile of cotton and is then turned into a quilt. Uh, so in this scene, the secretary, who is both, uh, I suppose, in a sense, the, the foil to, to the protagonist, um, both uh, colleague and collaborator and antagonist, is sitting on the uh, repurposed remains of the girl's mother, which is wrapped over the, her blobby body. And it's, um, I mean, yeah, you know, when they talk about utter originality, I think that would be fair. Would you say that would be fair, Shannon? <laughs> oh, yeah. It sounds like it would almost be an unpleasant read, but it's actually, um, it was quite gripping. I thought it was gripping. And incredibly gripping i could not put it down once we got so that it's split into three journals once i got to journal two oh it was um and it's one of those books i mean we finished it a week and a bit well i did a week and a bit ago and i'm still thinking about what what was the point so i mean we're still talking about the secretary here mm. you know she mentioned she has been raped by the the assistant director Oh, uh, no, it was by the head of security the, who was previously an audio the technician, engineer. I believe. Yeah. 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 Um, and then he got promoted to head of security, and I think that was her idea. Yeah. And then she ends up killing him, not her, but ordering five men to kill him. We did say spoiler alert, didn't we? Mm, yes. Yeah, we the did. Murder. Um, and, but throughout this book, she is always saying, you know, you're my type. You know, why are you searching for your wife so hard? And then it gets referred to that she's a, a test tube baby, which I find quite funny. And because she's a test tube baby, she's devoid of all emotion. Um, and she reacts differently to the sexual experiments done on her. Now, I don't know if that's because of the rape that happened or because of the test tube situation. <laughs> the test tube situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. And then the descriptions of the secretary at, it changes. Like you said, she, at one stage, she's this very gorgeous sexual being. And then at other times she's grotesque in a way, um, viewed by the man. And I mean, I still can't figure out what was the deal with the moon shoes. What, oh, the what jump shoes. About, yeah. That yeah. made him run super fast. I don't know, but I have to say, so these jump shoes, they, yeah, they allow you to run really fast and jump really high. And I have, I had this weird image float into my head of, you know, they've, they've got all these sex experiments going on. I had this sort of rather odd image in my head of a Nike ad in Japan, obviously, uh, yeah. with the, you know, with the slogan, just do it. Um, and just scenes from Kobo Abe's book with all the characters wearing Nike branded jump shoes. Um, and just doing it. Just doing it. Just doing it. Just, I'm winking my, my, I'm winking here. Just do it because this whole book is just a sexual experiment. I mean, it, it was kind of odd. The, the jump shoes didn't need to be there. And I, I just well, I love that they are. Yeah. That's the reason why I originally thought this was a Shutter Island situation because I'm like, because he goes on about how he's a salesperson, how he wants to talk to the president about, you know, um, taking over a division, becoming department leader or something like that. And I'm like, jump shoes? Really? That's just, 
who thinks of that? But obviously Kobo Abe did. He certainly, well, he was an inventor. He may have actually made some jump shoes. Um, oh, actually. Yeah, uh, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's much more sophisticated. I, I think, um, I, like I haven't seen Shutter Island, uh, but I have seen the trailer and that's why I haven't seen Shutter Island, but I understand that it's, um, a, a, a modern film noir. Um, but it's effectively, um, running on the concept of it was all the dream. Yeah. Um, whereas I think in Abe, the, the, the space for dreaming isn't there. Uh, everything is so dreamlike. It's both all at once. There would never be that kind of, um, crude division of one thing and the other. That would be very yeah. un Abe. Uh, so it's, it's, it's much more powerful than that. I think I actually have a quote, um, which I'd like to share. Um, because I think, uh, Abe, Abe might be an original, but he definitely exists within a lineage in, in writing. Yeah. Um, uh, I found an article, um, online Kobo Abe three must read genius surreal novels by, by Will Heath, um, of booksandbow.com. Uh, now I, I should say from the get go, I'm a big fan of booksandbow.com. I like to watch their videos, like, and subscribe. And, um, I've discovered through them, uh, a number of, uh, Japanese and Korean authors that I might not otherwise have found at least not so quickly. Um, and yeah, I would, I would suggest that anyone listening to this, go check them out. Um, and I don't know, tell, tell them we sent you, uh, like, and subscribe. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, shameless plug right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. No shame here at all. Um, so this is what, uh, Will Heath wrote about, um, Kobo Abe's position, I guess, in, in the canon, um, uh, in particular, uh, referring to secret rendezvous. Of all of Kobo Abe's novels, Secret Rendezvous is the one which so many inspired works can be traced back to. Similarly, it is the one most obviously inspired by the man Abe is so often compared to, Franz Kafka. It's evident just how inspired Murakami, and when I say Murakami, I'm talking about Haruki Murakami, uh, must have been by the works of Kobo Abe and Secret Rendezvous in particular. So much of the tone, characters, and events of the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, which is arguably Murakami's masterpiece, can be found in the architecture of Secret Rendezvous. Beyond Murakami, there are clear links between the genetics of this novel and The Factory by Hiroko Ayamada. Uh, now I'll just interrupt myself again to say The Factory by Hiroko Ayamada is now on my reading list because uh, books and bound know what they're talking about. So apparently this is one that we should all be reading. So I'll be doing that back to the quote. While secret rendezvous is so explicitly inspired by, and even reads like an homage to the works of Franz Kafka, it also takes on a life of its own and has its own unique themes to explore. 
Kafka was intensely obsessed with the paralyzing, confusing, alienating, inhuman bureaucracy of post-industrial Western life. Secret Rendezvous, on the other hand, is more concerned with how our jobs, our roles, our relationships, and even our places of working and living seem to mold and shape us into ugly, unknowable, unhelpful things. Alienation is still a key Kafkaesque theme here, but it's what causes that alienation and what it leads to that makes Abe's novel uniquely its own piece of art. So I, I think that's a very... Um, Oh, that's fantastic. Insightful uh, analysis of, of Secret Rendezvous. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, alienation. Alienation, again, can be boiled down to identity. Um, and I suppose the, the, the question this leads to is, did the book affect your own sense of identity, Shannon? Did, did you find yourself unsettled in that, in that way? Yes. Um, I don't know if my answer relates that much to identity, but given the theme of sex that runs through this book and the way that it's presented, it was almost clinical. It, I felt, oh, there's nothing wrong with um, severing the half of a human and attaching it to another for them to have sex with that person's daughter. There's nothing wrong with taking a 13-year-old and getting training her to masturbate um like oh there's nothing wrong about this woman getting raped because she seems to be fine it really kind of put the idea of what is right and wrong morality around sexual acts um mm. in that moment of time i'm not yeah so i definitely that's probably why throughout this book you feel that slight uneasiness because he's de defamiliarized that concept for me and even the relationship between doctors and patients as well and the the idea of a human wound yeah uh, what about you no look and and i get exactly what you mean it's you become uh, destabilized in the moment of the reading so you know mm. you come to the book as as shannon and it's Shannon's reading of Secret Rendezvous. Um, and so in a sense, uh, you own that reading. Uh, but uh, in a kind of uh, urban slang sense, the reading starts to own you. And it starts unraveling you. And, and it starts reinterpreting the reader, I think. I, I agree. I found myself quite at ease with many of these difficult concepts in the moment that I was reading. And I think that's a real tribute to his skill. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I now, you know, sit comfortably uh, with these ideas, but during the time of the reading, um, I found them much more manageable. Um, and so as a reader, you, you do become destabilized. I think your identity does. Uh, and I mean, you know, all through this story of voyeurism, we are peeping at the characters as readers. We are peeping through the same holes, looking at the same things, um, yeah. and finding ourselves not wanting to leave, you know, the, the, the hospital's a labyrinth, uh, and 
part of that labyrinth, I think, is the reader's own imagination. And like I said, you know, I I know that the that the back half of the horse is not a horse, and yet I continually reshape it as an actual horse. Yeah. Uh, to the point where when I talk to people about it, I, I still talk that way, uh, which is which is odd because I, I know logically the logical, uh, not surreal part of my brain absolutely understands the mechanics of what occurred. But I think that's the power of this book is that it pushes your imagination into odd shapes uh, like the wounded girl. Uh, and you, you almost have to keep pulling yourself back into shape, you know, a, a Gareth shape, just kind of trying to push myself back into shape so that I look something like myself to myself. And yeah, yeah I, I got that from this book. I think, um, it's not as strong to, to my mind as the ruined map, um, because the ruined map, I think, uh, is more engaging from the get go, um, and provides a very familiar, um, setting, uh, and then makes it all tremendously unfamiliar as it goes along to the point where you're not sure that it was ever familiar to you. And you might've been imagining that it was familiar and that it's a very unsettling thing. And again, it, it, it ties back to identity. I assume the box man, which is out the second book, um, would have a similar effect. I think he's approaching this, this concept from three different angles. Yeah. So what would you give it? How many, how many stars on the Shannon, Try saying that five times. Um, so I would give this a 4.5. Uh, originally it was a four, but because I'm still thinking about it, even beyond just having to record this podcast on our book review segment, I, I'm, I'm still questioning what was the point in a good way. So that's where that extra 0.5 comes from. And what about you? And did you want to read out your, uh, Goodreads review? I um I actually haven't written my Goodreads review yet. I, I have. Oh I've, no, you did it on Secret Rendezvous. Okay. I did. No, I did my it on bad. the Ruined Map, but um, I haven't done Secret yeah, Rendezvous right. yet. Okay, I gave I'll it four stars on Goodreads, um, and it's interesting because the reason why I'd give it four stars is because for me the Ruined Map was a hard five, and because I'm comparing the two, and I think the Ruined Map is the superior novel. Uh, Secret Rendezvous simply can't be five stars. Uh, but I am finding as time goes by, it sits with me. Uh, I find my mind going back to it again and again, as, as, as you have Shannon. So I think I agree. I think it's 4.5 stars for me too. Um, I, I think that there's just something intangible about it. It, it is a very original piece of work. Yeah. Uh, and you know, stories, if you want to define what a story is, a story is what happens to a reader. And this story continues to happen to me. It's, uh, it's been several days since I finished it. 
and its effects, I suppose uh, it's a bit like this orgasm uh, contest that they're all engaged in where they're timing the length of the orgasms. If, if a reading experience could be described as orgasmic, the shudders continue to this to this moment. Um, has there ever been a review like this? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be okay. quotable, doesn't it? I wouldn't someone yeah. stick that up on a website somewhere. That's going to be the start section of this podcast. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. Enshrined um, okay. forevermore. Yeah. Okay. Uh, moving on. Book reviews. Oh, yeah. So um, I just wanted to announce the next book that we're going to be discussing on our book review segment. So to decide the genres of the books that we're going to be reading, I go online and I do a little spinner that goes through all the genres and it landed on horror. So I have chosen House of Leaves by Mark C. Danielewski. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very excited because I've heard so many great things about this book uh, from you, Gareth. You mentioned it was a great read. And I also heard it, it through uh, a guy that I listened to called Tim Ferriss. And um, it's a really good time to buy this book because they are just doing a new uh, new release, is it? Yeah, and- it's never been an easy book to get, but it finally yeah. is. So now is the time. Now is definitely. the time. And go buy it and read it so you can join us in discussing um, this book. And if you have also read Secret Rendezvous and would like to tell us your thoughts and opinions, don't forget to send us an email at admin at thepleasureofthetext.com or you can leave a message on our website, which is thepleasureofthetext.com. And... um, Oh, and next week, we have an incredibly special guest joining us. She is a Brisbane-based Australian writer called Cheryl Sullivan. She has recently recently released her book, Harvest of the Unborn, Mm. and um, I've just finished reading it, and I'm very excited to have her join us on the podcast. We're going to talk a bit about this book. She's currently writing the second book in the series. I think she's planning on a trilogy. And we're going to have questions about her creative writing process. So if you have any questions that you'd like to ask a published author, send those through as well. Well, that should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. Yep. I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, so, yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to add, Gareth? Yeah, maybe. Just a, just a quick thing. Um, if if you're going to read House of Leaves, um and you get to it in time. So we'll be doing the podcast for it in a month's time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, feel free to send through a short review, um, oh, maybe 25 words or less or something like that. Uh, or certainly, you know, n- not, not a short essay. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll read it out and, and get some other voices besides our own flowing through the podcast. I, I, I imagine we can do a series of different voices. Yeah, that'd be great. Because like we said, you know, reading writing isn't a lonely pursuit. So I think that'd be a great idea, Gareth. Yeah. And, you know, practice your accents, Shannon, like, because you want to, you want to make them distinguishable. So see what you got. And homework. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, this has been a pleasure, Gareth. And um, I hope everyone has enjoyed, enjoyed themselves today. And we'll see you next week with Cheryl Sullivan. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. See you, everyone. See ya.